Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Brian Russell, the author of the new book, Centering Prayer. Brian is an award-winning professor of biblical studies and a transformational coach for pastors and spiritually-minded professionals. He's also the host of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. You can learn more about Brian and his work in the world at brianrussellphd.com. In the conversation, Brian and I discuss the practice of centering prayer, the power of sitting quietly, the obstacles to sitting in silence, humility and confidence, love, compassion, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Brian Russell. I guess first and foremost, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you for taking the time to connect. It's great to be here, Joshua. Thanks for the invitation. For the listeners that may not be familiar with you, how do you describe your work in the world? Yeah, well, basically, I mean, my personal mission statement is to seek out, uh, study, and live the deepest truths so I can teach them to others compassionately, compellingly, and in transformational ways. And so I live out of that. I, I, I have, I'm a professor. I teach uh, biblical studies at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, but I'm also a podcaster where I just explore um, deeper issues of really philosophy spiritual formation, uh, and, and living out uh, in leadership, I would say. And then I also coach, and I coach pastors, and I also call, coach uh, spiritually-minded entrepreneurs, I would say. So I stay busy, but I really love what I do living out of that mission statement. You embarked on this path of, of, uh, of ministry, teaching biblical studies, you know, at, a, at an early age in life as a, as a young, young adult, what gave you that clarity at such a young age to head down that path? Yeah, I, I grew up in, uh, in a small United Methodist church or medium sized United Methodist church in Northeast Ohio. And I had a fairly dramatic, uh, religious conversion experience when I was 15. I'd been going to that church for 10 years, but I was in a great youth group and, then my pastor started encouraging me to uh, be his assistant. So I, I, he kind of mentored me and it just became kind of a natural fit um, from that point. I went straight to seminary after I graduated, but uh, yeah, so it was kind of uh, a calling from a young age and probably the, maybe the strongest thing was my own mentor, the pastor I was speaking of. Um, he used to tell me, uh, don't ask questions, just believe. And that didn't quite cut it for me, uh, Joshua, because I had lots <laughs> of questions and I still do. So it was, I guess it was both uh, my own curiosity and wanted to, wanting to understand really faith's foundations that led me down the path that I did. And plus just a real heart to want to serve other people and help them to experience the kind of blessings that I, that I've received. So kind of those two things, a desire to really serve and uh, 
lots of questions, plus my own religious experiences, I guess. I'll put those three together, and that's led me down my path, and I'm still excited about it at 52, though it's, you know, it's meandered here and there in terms of emphases, but it's been uh, – Last thirty-seven years, uh, I've been kind of following this this path. Mm. Well, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of curiosity, I've I've got a lot of questions for you around this new book of, of centering prayer, and, and there may be some listeners that have some questions around you know what what is centering prayer. So, how do you describe it? Yeah, centering prayer is another way to think about it is it would be silent meditative prayer or even the prayer of silence. In other words, it's um, when we most of us think of prayer, we think of ourselves saying words or images or reading prayers. Um, you know, some people uh, like would recite like the Lord's Prayer, for example, or read prayers in a liturgy. But centering prayer is a silent silence and solitude practice where we essentially just take a block of time. You know, in the book, I generally say try to do 20 minutes, but you can do any amount of time that you have, you know, that you have the space for. And you're literally just committing to sitting with God, but not trying to communicate with words. And what the practice essentially is, is whenever you find yourself thinking about something or feeling something or seeing an image, which will be most of the time you surrender that to God uh, because you just want to have a connection with God in silence. And you do that, the word, the centering part comes from you, you select a prayer word. Um, and the, the classic teaching is just want like a two or three syllable word. Um, if I suggest as a Christian, I just suggest people use Jesus, but you could use God or peace or love or joy or even a word like surrender. And whenever you kind of find yourself in a thought, which again, will be most of the time, because the goal of this isn't to erase your mind, that's not possible, but it's essentially just to surrender a thought when you become aware of it. And you just essentially do that. And you just have over time, you have this interesting, powerful way of communicating with God that's outside of words, which is how most of us, when we think about religion, relate. We relate through reading scripture or saying prayers or things, but this is just a way to just be with God. So it's very powerful. When people think of Christianity, they may not often connect that with with a silence practice or Christian yeah. meditation. Um, could you speak to the, the roots of, of how far does this go back in uh, in the tradition? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just to be perfectly honest, the church I grew up in, they would have probably taught against this very thing. So oftentimes it gets associated with um, other religions, for example, like we think of meditation typically with like Buddhism or Hinduism, perhaps. Um, but it actually has deep roots in the faith. In the Christian faith, it goes back to at least the third or the fourth century when Christians moved out into the wilderness to surrender even more to God. These would be the persons that would have started monasteries and things. But you could arguably say this goes back even into the um, Old Testament famous verse. This wasn't necessarily about centering prayer, but Psalm 4610, for example, says, Be still and know that I'm God, which invites us just to be quiet. And some, um, depending if folks know the stories, there's a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah. And Elijah had a conflict with um, members of another religion in ancient Israel. This is in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And Elijah has to flee for his life. And he thinks he's the only person left that believes, <laughs> believes in the God of the Bible. And 
God invites Elijah to, uh, Elijah goes all the way back to Mount Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments were given originally to Moses. So he goes back to this place and it speaks of God encountering Elijah, but it says that there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. There's fire, but God's not in the fire. There's really strong wind, um, but God's not in the wind. But then it says God Elijah experienced God in the old translation saying a still small voice, but the actual Hebrew there is silence. So it's, uh, so you can almost argue that this whole silent stuff has deep roots even back into the Old Testament, but for sure is within the Christ following movement, it goes back to within a century or two of Jesus himself. So this is um, deep roots, just not as well known, especially in Protestant circles as it would be in, say, in Roman Catholicism or even Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm. Before we get into maybe some of the benefits of, of this practice, I would love to talk a bit about the obstacles which you, you, you reference in there. It's kind of this paradox of, of solitude. There's yeah. well-known quotes by Nietzsche or, or Pascal about the difficulties of, uh, of just sitting, sitting quietly. Could you speak to a bit of the obstacles that may stand in the way? Yeah, and it's it's that's the, the such that's the interesting thing, and that's and that's the there's these obstacles that sit uh, as as on the other side of transformation. Um, but you know, like um, I know you like the Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius has that famous quotation about the obstacle kind of ultimately being the way through something, and, and in a sense, mm-hmm. um, the obstacles to silence actually isn't anything outside of us because you know, as soon as you're literally alone, and this is why like solitary confinement is, is a punishment for sometimes is when you're alone, um, you're never really alone because, you know, your thoughts are always with you. And the longer you sit alone, you're often confronted with the pain in your life or past traumas or bad memories, um, or even worries about the future. And so that really is the entire obstacle. And so what a silence or solitude practice does, and, and also certain kinds of journaling would be the same thing as well. It's just this, as we're talking about the meditation practice of centering prayer, but um, silence is the obstacle because to get to the benefits, you have to just be willing to allow whatever's on the inside to kind of bubble up in your mind and then instead of ramming it back down, especially if you run into some kind of um, something that bothers you, like a past trauma, a bad memory, you see anger in yourself, there's different things that you, you'll see in the silence. But it's just you have to release those things to God. And that's the hardest part of the centering prayer part is when you get the troubling thoughts. Like, you know, when I'm sitting in silence, sometimes I wonder, I use a Fitbit with an alarm on it. So sometimes I wonder, Jesus is taking forever. I wonder if I set my alarm. I mean, that's a meaningless thought, basically, but it's when that bad memory pops up, you know, I see it in my head, then do I just push it back down or do I realize, okay, I'm in God's presence, I need to give this to God. And so as soon as you get to the point where you can just be curious about what emerges out of, um, like an author, James Hollis, talks about the swamp lands of our soul, If, if, if we can just be curious about what comes up. And then as soon as we realize we're in a thought, not freak out about it, but then just gently give it to God, that's where the transformation place, but that's where people get stuck too with all of the thoughts that they get confronted with. Maybe we could spend a few minutes here on on that. You, you referenced James Hollis, 
this Jungian, um, yeah. uh, modern Jungian, Jungian psychologist, um, in Jung's writes about the, the shadow or this yes. dark side. You think sometimes a common term in, uh, in Christianity is maybe the false self. How, how do you see and how do you, how do you work with that in whether it be this particular practice or any sort of solitude practice? Yeah, that's such a great question. And this is the kind of the dark side of solitude that we're getting into. But I think it's really important because uh, most people, you know, a lot of times you hear a spiritual practice and all you're thinking, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to help me get closer to God. Uh, but there's really, there's some scary stuff that really happens. And um, I'm guessing a lot of folks in the audience would have at least heard theoretically of the idea of seven deadly sins. A lot of times they almost become sort of slapstick and they get built into movies. But that whole seven deadly sins tradition actually comes out of, of monks observing their interior life precisely when they're in these silence and solitude practices. And so uh, part of my book, I go back and reference a one of the early monastics. His name was Evagrius Ponticus, and he had eight of these things instead of seven. So he had an extra one. And... Um, what those would be, that, um, in, you know, just I'll read, I'll just list off the eight and we can go back to the shadow parts. But it's um, some of these are common, like the first three of these really come out of, I would say, out of our own brains because uh, it's um, uh, gluttony, which you know, obviously is about food, but we have a natural drive to need to eat. So that's part of our own selves. Right. Uh, then we have um, um, avarice or greed, which most people associate with money, but really that's rooted in fear that they're, you know, that they're, the future's not safe. So we need security, which is a normal part. And then there's lust, which again, most of us just associate with, um, um, well, lust with sexual lust, but that's actually part of being a human too, because we have this natural drive to reproduce. And so we want to notice that when we talk about our shadow or false self, parts of this are just how we're wired. And then the questions up being, do those things get twisted and disordered to be, to, to have it to be excessive and to be the main drives in our lives. And then you go deeper in the seven deadly or eight deadly sins, you get um, anger, laziness, not so much, you know, I want to lay in bed all day, but it's a, a, a spiritual laziness that I don't want to grow anymore with God. And then there's spiritual sadness and then there's pride and vainglory. So, those are the things you might think of those tendencies on the inside of all of us that when they become excessive, because we all have days when maybe we're sad or maybe when we're lazy. And by the way, when it says sad, it's not clinical depression. That's a whole different piece. And, you know, if you're struggling with that, obviously we need to go see a psychologist or even see a doctor if we, if we need to. But it's more of a spiritual sadness or a stuckness. So when we think about the false self, um, it's... I would say from a, as a theologian and as a, that the false self is who we have to become or who we are apart from God's grace and the full acceptance ourselves of the love that God has for us. So we construct this person that ultimately is driven sometimes by darker tendencies um, and sitting in silence just brings that out. And we sort of see the truth of ourselves while simultaneously being in God's presence. And so God essentially invites us to give us the false self. If you think of like Genesis, Adam and Eve, they hide behind a tree when God comes because they realize something's wrong. Uh, but you know, what's God always say? God says, Adam, where are you? And they 
come back into the light. And so in a sense, these silence practices invite us just to bring the truth about ourselves. Um, and I like to say, when we say the truth of ourselves, it's, it's also, it's no matter how good it is or how painful it might be, you know, we're kind of simultaneously both of those things and just give that to God. And that's how God begins to move us and heal us um, into something closer to what our true self is. I don't know if that's making sense, uh, Joshua, but that's a uh, kind of start to your, to the answer. No, I, I appreciate that. Would you agree with, I think young to, to paraphrase something along yeah. the lines of, I must accept my, my dark side to be whole. Do you think yeah. of it as an acceptance of, of a bit of that shadow or, or dark side? Yeah, I actually do. And, and, and I think that's perfect language. And that's, you know, I bring in um, some of this Jungian psychoanalysis stuff into the book because I think it's really helpful. I mean, I have a chapter called Entering the Cave. <laughs> and uh, I was going to put on, I was going to use a quote from Joseph Campbell, the cave that you're afraid to enter holds the treasure that you seek. But um, we decided not to use that. The editors kind of talked me out of using that one. But I, I love exactly what you said about Jung is we actually do have to own the darkness on the inside, uh, because if we don't own it, we usually, again, suppress it. So whether we bring it out into the light or not, it's true. And so in some ways, if we want God to fully work in our lives and heal us, we can't be embarrassed ourselves just to hand God everything about us. Both, And that's both the beautiful things about us, because uh, there's beautiful things that come out when we hand God the shadow, too but also those hurt parts of ourselves. And then, you know, the, the antidote is, is what I would, is what the Bible would call grace. And mm. one of my favorite quotes I use, it's a theologian named Paul Tillich from the 20th century. He just describes grace as accepting the fact that you're unconditionally accepted. And that's the antidote for the shadow, but we can't suppress it as it comes before us in silence, just own it and give it to God. Mm. It has me curious about, humility yeah it, it's a bit of um not necessarily a paradox i guess but it's a bit of a strange thing for me around humility i yeah. i think of yourself and i reached out to you to come on the on the podcast because i i really feel your humility coming through whether it's in uh, conversations on the podcast but even in this book when you really put out there that when you first are sitting down and in, in the centering prayer practices of, of maybe some not so, you know, lovely thoughts coming up and, and putting that out there in a book and communicating it to the world. It, it seems like a real authentic confidence that's rooted in a, in a, maybe a deeper humility. Is there any sort of connection of, of exploring those those beautiful things and and the darkness with with true humility. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you know, thanks for what you just said too. I really appreciate it because it is um, it's kind of um, it's actually it's the the hardest part about this book and, and even the podcast is you know I just got to the point where I became comfortable with who I am. Um, and it's been a lot of work that God did in my life. And 
I want to help people not just to be able to describe, you know, theology or philosophy or truth sort of objectively. I'm more concerned to help people to actually live it out. So a couple principles that kind of guide me that I think, you know, it's always funny. Am I, am I, I'm very humble, uh, Joshua. So (laughs) it's always funny to say, to think that, but it's like the principles that have guided me to kind of be where I'm at is I love, um, uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, he's an author. He's written books like um, maybe most famously The Black Swan. But I love his book Skin in the Game, the idea that um, um, you know you have to not just be telling other people what to do but live it out. And so one of my principles is I don't teach anything that I haven't tested myself and 100% believe because I wouldn't want to just um, – be inauthentic between, you know, who I am when, like when this gets turned off and who I sound like I am on the vid, on this podcast, though, of course, there's going to be some discontinuities there, but it's real important for me to just, um, to be real, even if it's scary. Um, I love the principle of wounded healer that like a Henry Nowen described, um, cause I've been through, and you, know, you read the book. I mean, a lot of this deep stuff work that I did was because, because I had a 20 year marriage that just literally exploded and blew up, um, 11 years ago, and I decided at that point um, I was going to take my ownership for my peace and wasn't going to play victim, and I was going to let God do whatever work God needed to do in me to, to, to heal me from that. And that included a prayer, which is kind of interesting about your shadow question. I, I prayed early on. This isn't in the book, but one of my, my prayers was, God, uh, bring all of the darkness out of the shadows into your light so I can be healed by your grace. And so at some level, whatever I appear to be just comes from literally seeing (laughs) what's really on my inside and realizing that I'm a lot less holy than I probably thought I was. And then being able to, you know, now look at other people, you know, all on this journey together. So I think those would be a couple principles. And I'd rather say, I know you have an interest in like ancient philosophy. Courage is a big part of this. Um, that's one of the core virtues that um, you know, Stoicism presented and then Christianity took over one of the, the principle of courage. And we have to be courageous to confront the truth of ourselves so that we can grow fully into the people that God created us to be. So you mix all that into a pot of stew and that probably gives me the appearance of being very humble, but it's, it's actually a, a hard one piece um, because, you know, I'd love to think a lot better of myself than, <laughs> than, I, than what I really am. But I'm just and, and then last, I think I might have said this already, but gratitude. I'm just so grateful um, to have the privilege of being like on your show and just sharing um, some of the things that I've discovered about myself that seem to be common to other people. But most folks um most of us want to hide. We don't like um, the stuff that comes out of the insides of us. But, you know, like you said, when I first started doing Centering Prayer, I didn't have a coach on this stuff. And like I, would, I put this in the book, it is embarrassing, but I'm sitting out in silence and I'm just realizing how angry I am and I'm having all this anger coming up. And then even in another way, maybe a little bit more embarrassing, I'm even having all these sexual fantasy thoughts coming up when I'm supposed to be sitting in God's presence. But then, oh, that's God unloading my unconscious and God already knows this stuff. So I just have to give it to him. And you know, that will, that's quite humbling. I have to say <laughs> that's a long answer there, but hopefully that helped a little bit. Yeah. No, I love it. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, it makes me think of Richard Rohr, the organization yeah. that he founded with, uh, with a few others, this, 
the Center for Action and Contemplation often talks about these polarities that the the both and thinking. I wonder, is yeah. it, um, you know, you, as you mentioned, this confidence, humility type of thing of, uh, you know, the light darkness yeah. within us of, uh, you know, polarity, like an inhale and an exhale. They're kind of both needed, which doesn't often make sense. I, I think of uh, in one of my favorite books, uh, uh, I think the first book that uh, Pope Francis came out with a number of years ago, but the name of God is mercy, talking about examining your own wretchedness is the language that he used, but it's, it, that doesn't make sense as a pathway to, to, to confidence and, and, and peace. It, at least it doesn't necessarily make sense to me. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's so good. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if, if to me, the goal of life, I mean, I, I haven't read that particular book, but the title resonates in terms of mercy. And, you know, to me, I, I would use the word love. So if the purpose of life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbors uh, as ourselves, um, if that's the goal, then we have to look in our own lives and say, what are the obstacles to love? And, and part of that, it, it's the biggest obstacle I think we really have. A lot of times we think, oh, it's the devil or other people. It's actually us. And so to me, you know, I love your question because it reminds me, and this is kind of the growing edge that I've been thinking about um, lately. I put part of one of these prayers is, I guess both of these prayers are in the book, but I've thought about them differently. Like if you're going to ask me what my two favorite prayers are right now, um, it, you're going to, these are two contradictory ones. The first one is I love the Jesus prayer, which has deep roots in the faith. That's Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then this other prayer I love, this comes from a, a, a Roman Catholic a spiritual director named Macrina Veter Care. And it's, um, and listen to this one, um, God help me believe the truth about myself no matter how beautiful it is, right? And, and, and it's like, you need, those are kind of like, you, that second prayer is almost a trick. Like if you're a person that really owns their guilt and you hear like beautiful, you think that sounds like a heresy. But what that really invites us to do is just recognize the totality of who we are. We're all persons who will always need God's grace. And that's kind of the center part. And thank the Lord, God is merciful. But we can never forget that we're, each one of us was you know, literally created in God's image by God with love and that we have beautiful gifts inside. And to become that whole person, you know, and to kind of let loose the shadow and the false self and become that true person, we got to put those two things together. So, I, you know, I love your question. And that's, that's my thoughts on that, those two prayers, the Jesus prayer and then God help me believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. I'm, I'm hoping to talk a bit more about love. Um, yeah. you, you write in the book about the opposite of love and maybe we'll get to that. But one, one question, I guess, kind of related to a basic solitude type of practice. And you write, ponder for a moment, this idea, we are not merely our thoughts. It seems like such an important thought to comp contemplate. Uh, and like myself, 
you came to this, you know, a bit later in life, a, a bit a deeper realization of we're not merely our, our thoughts. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the the education or, you know, you think of yourself coming up, you know, a PhD, um, you know, you're teaching biblical studies for decades and decades. It's not necessarily something that is taught in at really any level of, of uh, formal education. Yeah. To me, and, and again, it's, it, I guess it depends how people are wired, but you know, like for me personally, when, when I, when I said that I, I'm, I'm a very driven person, I'm introverted. So I don't come off as like, you couldn't necessarily say I'm the classic type A, but I would be a type A introverted person, very ambitious. My brain really never shuts off, which can be a blessing or a curse. It's a blessing when I can think beautiful things. And, but you know, you get me a little anxious and I can basically catastrophize <laughs> with the worst mm-hmm. of people. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, in, in like this breakthrough moment, I talk about it at the beginning of the book for me was, um, one of my friends, I was going through, again, I was going through this divorce and I was just completely stressed out and fried. And, um, um, one of my friends said, you're going crazy. And yeah, probably was. I was really talking fast, even you know, faster than I'm talking to you right now, and just rattling away. And I so I went out for a walk, and I just remembered I had this moment where um, I didn't have headphones on, and everything just stopped. And like for a split second, it was total silence. And it's at that moment that God's love kind of literally broke through into my life. It didn't fix everything, but I realized that there was a way to experience God beyond theology, beyond reading the Bible, beyond just words or even images. It was just being. And so this whole business about our thoughts. Now, thought again, this centering prayer is not replacing um, scripture reading or regular prayers or even thinking about God. It's important to say that. But it's another layer outside of, of, of just pure thought. And so one of the oddest things that happens when you start this practice, if you've never done it before, is um, at first you may not even be aware of how much you're thinking, but at some point you'll realize you're thinking. <laughs> it's at that moment, it's so weird, you're thinking, wow, I'm thinking. And then you're like, okay, who's thinking if I can kind of see that I'm thinking, right? And so you just have this weird moment where you recognize part of yourself stands outside of what your brain is cranking out, right? And so um, that's the powerful piece. And since this is kind of an expansion of, especially if you're a person that thinks all the time, this is going to be the ultimate gift to you. It's like you can just kind of open yourself up to deeper layers that you didn't even know were there and that you're not just the stuff that you think about. Because a lot of times we can't control what goes through our head any more than you can control what you dream about at night sometimes. And so that's a real gift of these silence practices to kind of get step, be able to step back see your thought stream and then just surrender it to God and get these little spaces that break things up. And it also then lets you, you know, when like you, you, know, you mentioned, I seem like I'm humble. Part of it is just because I've seen my own motivations and my, you know, the, sometimes the contradictory motivations that are, that are running in me. I've seen that a lot of my thoughts aren't were things that like I heard my parents saying. So it's literally my parents' voices bouncing around in my head or, a pastor from someplace or a teacher, or maybe even just kind of stuff you inherited from a school teacher. And these thoughts are shaping us. And so, 
you know, stepping back and realizing, you know what, that stuff isn't necessarily really me. That's just things that my brain has picked up that keep buzzing around. That's a, that's a healing experience. So that's, that's what I mean by that. And so we're not just our thoughts. We're bigger than that. And the good news is God is actually infinitely bigger than even our most beautiful thoughts about God. There's, um, an author I like, I can't necessarily think of the name, um, offhand, but wrote the book, the liberated mind. Mm. Um, and he's the founder of, uh, act therapy and something he suggests in the book is naming that particular, you know, thought stream and, and not necessarily in some sort of, um, not welcoming it or, you know, anything in, in a negative context, but just simply putting a, a name as a separation that that is something that it's not necessarily just like, uh, our breathing, not necessarily we're in control of, but something that is trying to help us and trying to give us options to, to survive and, and thrive in the world. Hopefully does that connect with you? How would you think about, you know, someone, if you're working with someone one-on-one, because it, it seems to be a tough thing to also kind of wrap your head around. Like maybe there's a bit of humility that is also needed in there to realize that. No, I really love that. I haven't read that book, but I, I actually like that as a strategy because, you know, like just looking at my, my own self, like I can go back and name different events that literally have just kind of lived on forever and you know, like there's, you know, there's a hurt, and, you know, inside of all of us, you're a man too. Somebody, you know, I'm, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. There's like a hurt little scared boy that comes out inside of me in certain situations. So I can imagine, oh, that's just little Brian or something like that, you know, giving a little nickname to different things. Um, I think that that sounds actually really powerful. Um, now the only thing, and the, the centering prayer part would come alongside that in a sense, because what you're trying to do, I mean, I think it's good to name things, but then I'll actually just hand them over to the, to, metaphorically hand him to God with your centering prayer word. That's the thing is you want to break up the thought once you have it. You could say, oh, there's that, but then say the word and just kind of let it lift up. And I found by releasing certain pain, especially painful thoughts over and over again in God's presence, that the power that they once had um, to bring about a certain kind of response just slowly recedes. And I'm guessing that's probably what this strategy is that you just, that, 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 uh, in this act stuff, I, I'm going to, I'm going to check that book out. I mean, what, what, I mean, so you've had some experience. I mean, what, how do you, how would you connect that book with, um, like kind of what I'm talking about? Does that seem like we're talking about a similar piece? Like, I, I think so. I, I think some sort of visual help, something that at least to stick with your, your mind, I think of Thomas yeah. Keating, someone who, yeah. Um, I'm not super familiar with, uh, but I, I'm familiar with his work around centering prayer and kind of talking about mm-hmm. the thoughts being the boats. So it's a stream, yeah. you know, there's these boats, um, and you just don't want to hop on them. You know, you, you want to let them, let them go by, which is something Marcus, stream, yeah. yeah, which is something Marcus Aurelius says in meditations as well. Same thing I believe in uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind is, yeah, that like you want to in, invite them in and, and have an open door, but just not 
necessarily offer him tea and, you know, sit down and, um, but holding it loosely, I think some visuals, uh, tend to, tend to help there, but can still be very challenging. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Those are, I mean, all those images are, are just really, are really helpful. Um, yeah. So that is the whole thing. That's the healing. It's like, um, a long-term silence and solitude practice, it, um, it breaks, it, it makes you aware of your drives and your motivations in a way. And I think that's if, if you know, if I'm coming off of pure and humble, again, it's, I'm going to come back to that. It's just been sitting, spending a lot of time in silence, doing centering prayer, a lot of journaling and being under no illusions <laughs> about, again, my own need for grace, but also the gifts and talents that I was born with that if I can just surrender those to God, uh, God can use those and to, against, again, to help other people grow in grace, grow in love and, uh, you know, grow in service to other people. How do you think about awareness? When you think about change, um, there's something you write in the book of this, how you describe it as a, as a, a God moment. You, you go on this walk and the, the sound of a, of a bird captured your attention. And, you know, you found a, um, a moment of, of stillness. Could you speak to that a little bit and maybe how we might cultivate a little greater awareness in our lives? Yeah. Again, that, that whole thing, I was, was in, was in that really stressful place and, you know, I think our, our temptation a lot of times is we like to have noise. We like to have background stuff. So like, you know, maybe a lot of times I walk, listen to a podcast and there's nothing wrong with that. But this particular day, um, what the sound of the bird did was it essentially did what I would say our prayer word would do in centering prayer is it literally just broke up the ruminating thoughts that I've been going through that I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, when I was going through that whole divorce thing, I was afraid I was going to lose my job. I was going to lose um, my, uh, my children. Um, and that I was going to be completely broke. Cause I mean, it was all, you know, I have the more in the fact that was my, my former wife didn't want to be married anymore. I was gone, but that was, those other three things were the open questions when I was going to come back. So I was terrified and full of anxiety. And that day that I'm walking, I just had my thoughts and this, you know, all of a sudden, all those sensory things from being outside. And so going outside is a great way to begin to cultivate stillness and silence just to see how big the world is. But that day, that bird singing just broke up my thought pattern. So everything just froze. And so that's the experience. And then basically, I'm like, oh, wow, that was incredible. But it was just a split second. I thought, OK, there's a deeper spirituality that I know nothing about but that cut right through all the pain. And so if I can figure out what happened and if I could replicate that through some practice, um, that's going to be really important in my healing process. And again, now I'm not promising centering prayer every second is going to be awesome. Like that one moment was um, these spiritual moments. We can't control them because they're gifts from God, but these Silence practices put us in a position where we can have those types of experiences. And even if we don't, the experience of essentially learning again to break up the thoughts, again, not focus on a boat. I, you know, I love Keating's imagery, too, about the, the boats that just not focus on something and continually or get, essentially realign with our desire to sit with God. That's intangibly powerful and beneficial and puts us in a position then in our lives. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Robert Tuttle, he's, uh, he's in his early 80s now, but 
he always said that the key to life was um, showing up, paying attention, knowing that God has way more invested in this than we do. And, you know, as I thought back on my own experience with centering prayer and uh, these other silence practices like journaling, I've realized that over time I went from this massively driven introvert that, you know, was, when I teach, I'd walk into the classroom. When a class is over, I'd walk out to being a person who literally just kind of shows up. Um, you know, even our conversation, I'm you know, trying to listen carefully to what you're saying. Uh, it's just, and I'm paying attention now. Because it's not about me anymore. It's about me trying to be a conduit of God's grace. Because if anything's really going to happen, it's going to be God, not just me. And so that's, I don't know if that's exactly answering what you're asking, but that's, that's kind of how I would think back to what that moment taught me. It's that I need to show up, pay attention, and recognize that God has way more invested in all this than I do. Hmm. Richard Rohr talks about great suffering and great love as yeah. kind of these two paths. And you um, write about some, you know, great suffering that you experienced that kind of led to this, this yeah. moment or experience. Um, maybe we could transition to this yeah. path of great love and how that connects with, with centering prayer. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, and uh, you know I love Richard Rohr too. So I, that's that might even be from what is falling upwards a book or something. Or he probably writes that in a couple different places. But uh, yeah, and, and I've always thought, um, and so at some level, when I think about my own mission now, uh, Joshua, I'm hoping people go with the, the great love option <laughs> because the the great suffering thing. Um, and again, my suffering, what I compared to what some people go through all around our planet, I wouldn't call it great, but uh, it was definitely suffering. And uh, I, I needed that, obviously, to get the lessons that I wanted. But there is this other way. And so, like, sometimes I wonder, and it's not, I don't live my life with regret because you can't go back and re replace it, but it would have been interesting. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was I would love people to experience the levels of love that I have experienced now after all the pain as early as possible in life, perhaps as a way, um, can you, you're not going to avoid pain, but because there's always parts of life or suffering, but I think we could be transformed early on by the path of love. And that's going to then transform how you might experience suffering later. So, you know, I think what Centering Prayer is really inviting us to is to recognize the infinite nature of love um, and how really what God is inviting us to do, you know, a lot of times we just think about God at the, at the cheapest level was we believe in God. So we wouldn't go to heaven someday or something. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to deny afterlife or anything, but when I think about that, it's really God invites us into relationship with God, not just so we have an afterlife, but so that we can grow more and more and more and experience more and more and more of love. And so, I would suggest that like centering prayer, whether you start it in the midst of pain or you're more of a neutral place, I, I did, and I use this metaphor in the book and it's one of my favorites. It's, um, it's like a trip to the ocean, right? Um, you can, you know, a lot of times, you know, I live in Florida. I mean, you're in Georgia, so you're not too far from the Atlantic or whatever, but I mean, you go to the beach sometimes, you'll see people just sitting on the sand and never get in the water. I mean, that's, we don't want to do that. So if you're going to go to the ocean, get in the water, um, 
but then you'll, there'll be people that just sit on the edge with their toes dipping in. And then, you know, and then literally the metaphor is you can just keep walking towards the horizon. At some point, you're going to be in over your head. And to me, that's the moment where, you know, maybe you're fully in uh, the life with God, but just getting in over your head is just the start because you can keep going deeper and deeper. And, you know, and like uh, there's that part out in the Pacific, it's on uh, the Marianas Trench. I think it's called, uh, what is it called? Challenger Deep or something. It's the deepest part of the ocean. It's literally so deep that Mount Everest could be dropped in there and there's still miles <laughs> to the surface. And And I think of the journey of life like that. And so instead of um, when God invites us to love, love God, love neighbor, love self, that's not just a point that you can attain. That's an invitation to a journey to see what, how it can fully become. And I believe that's in a journey of for all eternity, Joshua. So that's kind of what it's going to be like. And so, um, you know, do that, like get on a surfboard at the beach, then and just paddle out and towards the horizon. At some level, you're never any closer to the horizon um, the only way you can see what happened is you turn around and look back, right? And so to me, that's the life that God is really calling us to. It's, um, you know, I, I used to like Shrek when I was younger, those cartoons. And in one of the Shrek movies, you have that funny scene where the donkey's going, are you, th- are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's the wrong question when we talk about spirituality, because, you know, no, you know, we're not there yet. Matter of fact, um, we're never really going to get there. The, the better question is, since God is infinite, how far can we get and, and just enjoy that whole journey? So I would think that's, to me, that's the compelling, that's the love side of this whole thing. Because when you have suffering, you're kind of running from the suffering. But when you get that vision of love, that will pull you for all eternity into becoming you know, the person that we were really created to be. Mm. Does that sound compelling to you? I mean, that's when I think about yeah. that, that's, that, that, I love that. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I think of this popular verse of, of don't harden your heart. Um, yeah, that's good. And it, it always connects with this idea of um, Anthony DeMello, who I like. Something along the lines of, you know, the opposite of that, of, of melting this kind of exterior you know, that we, that we build up around our hearts, if you will, or, or maybe if we don't build it up, maybe it's just something that needs to be melted away a bit. And it sounds like centering prayer, this stillness practice is, is a way to, to melt that a bit. If I heard correctly in a, in another interview, kind of some of the, the feedback that, that you've got is around uh, being compassionate. Like your compassion has has grown compared to maybe a couple decades ago. How do you see that? Does that connect? And, and how does that actually happen? No, I love I love that. Um, let, let's start with the how does it actually happen part. It's um, and, and again, this is it's one of those deals that like I've, one of my favorite uh, kind of motivational or productivity quotes. Is, excuse me, is um, you know small things done consistently over time yield extraordinary results. And so, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. And again, I'm not going to stand on your podcast and claim that I've even, you know, I've, I've grown a lot, but there's a lot more that I need to grow into. But I just as an encouragement, I mean, this is literally, um, I mean, I've been sitting in silence on and off. Uh, well, actually, pretty consistently for almost 10 years. And I've been doing the centering prayer for close to eight years now. And it's um, 
but it's been, you know, every time I sit down and do it and I pretty much do it every single day with rare, with very rare exceptions. Um, so it's more like the process is like going to the gym and just doing, you know, you know, say, that's just what we're working on arms. So we're doing, um, um, what actually what does it even go <laughs> do the or we just pick an exercise you're doing some exercise um uh pull-ups or push-ups it's like every time you do the flex it's not like your muscle bulges all of a sudden but when you do it enough suddenly you wake up and look in the mirror and like wow i i have actually i have a bicep now yeah bicep curl that's what i was trying to think of in the exercise um and so that's the process it's literally just surrendering your thoughts to god over and over again is the process that this happens. Now, uh, the the other question again, I think I lost it. The first part of your question, you were talking about Anthony DeMello, right? With the the melting, how does that does that fit? I would say over time that you just begin to see things, and other people will see it before you do. Like one of the things that I've noticed. Like as a teacher, I've always been a pretty good teacher. Like um, early on in my career, I won teacher of the year. This was way before I ever started doing this contemplative practice. So I was a good teacher. Um, But now um, the difference is I care about my students so much that I don't just teach them about the Bible I'm helping them to actually live their lives better and spending time with them outside of class and inviting them into having, you know, conversations on Zoom. A lot of my students are at distance and I'm showing them how to connect spiritual practices to that. So that's the change in me that I've moved just from, again, it's the description of the what that's all in my head. I could describe the what about God. And now the shift has been through these repetitions of doing all these, this contemplative work is now I'm more focused on how do you live it out? So I don't know if that's the perfect answer, but that would be the shift that's taken place in me simply from showing up and putting the reps in the gym pretty much every day. Do you think you see your students differently when you, when you look Absolutely. out or is it more of a, you're seeing yourself differently? How? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, you know, I actually, this this will make me look really bad. But how about maybe I'm actually seeing my students for the first time mm. over against just I'm in a class and I'm having this talk. Cause I'm introverted enough, and uh, you know, those of those of us who are introverts know you, you can literally kind of see your thoughts inside your head before you say them most of the time. So um, I think I actually see my students as individuals, whereas before I would have just maybe saw them as a class. Now, that didn't mean I didn't know people's names, but that's kind of how it feels like. It's more like I now see the students not just as students in the class, but as you know, people created in God's image who have lives outside of class that have, you know, a lot of most students at seminary are older, so they have husbands, wives, they have children, they have grandchildren. I mean, so I'm seeing maybe the whole person now for the first time instead of just just the person that's in my Bible class to learn about how to read the scriptures or whatever. So mm-hmm. that would be the shift. So I'm seeing, I'm actually seeing them as persons now, which can, makes me sound kind of bad, but that's the closest I can say to no. the shift that's taking place. No, I, I love it. it. It's really interesting to me around any sort of change. Like I'm tend to, yeah. I tend to think these days that it's a, it's a bit of seeing. Like I think of that moment we were talking about earlier, that walk, the bird yeah. was always there. The sun has always been there. 
um, it, it's it's our perspective or, or seeing. It's really really interesting. Um, maybe we could wrap up. This has really flown by. I'm super grateful for your time, Brian. But on uh, on love, you write yeah. something around the true opposite of love is not hate. Thought that was really interesting. Could you say more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it, it's 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 indifference, um, and uh, and because you know, most people do say it's it's would in, in instinctively say it's 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 uh, it's hate, but uh, it isn't. It's it's just it's it's pure indifference. And this and this is important um, when we think about um, from a from a, a religious perspective. If we think the goal. And this is one of the you know the great commandment to love God, um, and when you look at the scriptures, it wasn't ever that the people that Israel and then even the folks in the New Testament church it was they never got to the point where they hated God. It's that they lost their one hundred percent commitment to God and were sort of hedging their bets around, which is really what indifference is. And so, like you read the Old Testament, it's not like the Israelites stopped worshiping the Lord. They just would add in Baal worship or other these different gods and goddesses. And that's mixing things up. And it, and if the goal is to love God, we need to make that the focus. And then all these other things fall into place underneath the love for God. So it's um if we think of the opposite is hate that you're like, well, I'm never going to do that. But, you know, we think of it as indifference. That's easy to look in our own hearts and say, here's the different parts of my life where I'm really indifferent or I'm sort of hedging my bets over against um, just embracing this journey to love. So that's that's the context where that sort of where that comes out. And I think that's a, a powerful insight. Like you can think um, even in like a relationship, you know, you can get can't imagine ever hating um, I'm remarried I can't imagine ever hating my my wife but what I have to really care, if I really want to love her I got to watch out those places where I end up being indifferent that's worse right so and I think that's the that's the way to think about it you wouldn't want an indifferent friend you want a friend that loves you um, and that um, that's uh, committed to you fully and you know that's that's what and, and so that's that's why the, the um, I think that distinction is important because we can fool ourselves. Oh, I don't hate them. I must love them. No, you can be indifferent. And that's the real opposite that we have to watch out for. How about with ourselves? What are ways yeah. that we're indifferent in loving ourselves? Anything come to mind? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the places, um, yeah. And, and you want to think of, and this will be, I've never been asked this question. So um, the, I, to me, the, the indifference makers, the things that compete for our ability to love ourselves. And, and by the way, when we say love ourselves, we're not just talking about a narcissistic love where it's all about us. A, a fully robust love of ourselves actually translated to its best in a, a profound love for God. So it's like we love ourselves for the sake of God is the kind of self-love we're talking about. But the, the, um, the part that would make us indifferent to that or block that is what I call the unholy trinity. And to me, it's fear, guilt, and shame. And you can, in, you know, in popular definitions, fear is I'm afraid that there isn't enough. So, so I feel like I don't have any security. Guilt is I don't do enough. And shame is I'm just not good enough. And so those are the things that would make us indifferent or dull. And you can think of indifference as sort of dulling even or blocking um, those are the things that would make us indifferent to our ability to love ourselves. And then it's divided. I, you know, I, I really, I mean, I say I love myself, but I just feel all this shame. 
Um, and, and shame comes from what other people do to us most of the time. You know, guilt is things that maybe we do, and then fears are experiences. But those are the things that would cause us not to love ourselves the way that God wants us to. So that's the that's what indifference in our own lives would be. It would be allowing guilt, shame, and fear to actually block how we truly see ourselves. Mm. And that's a that's a can of worms almost there, uh, John. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, but that to me, that's that's what indifference to loving ourselves would be. And the centering prayer opens us up to those things, and that's you know, and that's you can see yourself and give to the Lord your shame, give to the Lord your guilt, give to, give to the Lord your fear, and slowly you can be, then begin to love yourself as as God loves you, and that puts us in a position then. Um, you can be a gift then, right? We can be conduits of God's grace. Uh, we can show up in the world to serve others um, and, and not out of a place where we're trying to earn something from get somebody's approval, but we literally just kind of show up and allow God to love other people through us. But we have to get past that that junk in our lives. And so that's what indifference would be, allowing the junk in our lives to to numb the truth about ourselves no matter how beautiful it is. <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to wrap up. This has really been a great conversation. It's uh, flown by. How can yeah. people learn more about you and the new book, Centering Prayer? Yeah, well, yeah, the, I have a, I have a, a fairly new website. Um, it's brianrussellphd.com. Uh, if you go there, you can find out, you can see all the books that, I, that I've written. Um, you can check out my website. There's a bio and there's information about my coaching. So that's probably the best place. And there's also links to all my social media right off of that website. And then if you're interested in the book Centering Prayer, um, just type in Centering Prayer, my last name. It'll pop right up on Amazon, and uh, you can pick up a copy on Kindle or uh, paper if you want to, and uh, that'd be the best way. And again, super grateful. And if I can be of any service to anybody, reach out. Uh, my email is deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. is a great way to get a hold of me. Dr. Brian Russell, thank you for your time. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Super grateful to get to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.